Let's pray. Father, as we come again to your word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and you would speak to us just what we need to hear for our good and for your glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We continue with the account of the crucifixion from John's gospel, beginning at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. I want us to focus in these few minutes at verse 35 from the text that was just read. He who saw it has borne witness. John is very likely referring to himself. He is the witness who saw these things and is not lying. And having seen them in person, he now bears witness to them so that his audience and two millennia later, people like us might believe. You know John's gospel. You know that's the purpose of the entire gospel at the end of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book, this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is hitting on the grand purpose of his gospel in chapter 1935. But why? What is it about these two events, his legs not being broken, and in particular, what immediately precedes verse 35, verse 34, the piercing of Jesus' side that was so important? So, in other words, why would John think that having just relayed that Jesus' side was pierced and blood and water flowed out, Why would he think, aha, there you have it, now you should believe? What is it about the piercing of his side that would lead them to faith? Well, certainly on one level, it's to show that Jesus really died, and theologically to show that he was really human. You can't be saved unless you have a A God-man, and Christ is really human, and he really died. That's certainly part of it. But there's more going on here than just the physical proof that this was flesh and blood, a man who died. And so to understand what's significant here, we have to understand what we've already looked at, and that's the fulfillment language. Pastor Barclay set us up very well by looking at the fulfillment language already in chapter 19, casting lots for his garments from Psalm 22, I thirst, likely, at least in part, a reference to Psalm 69. And now we have two other fulfillment passages. We see them mentioned in verse 36 and 37. Not one of his bones will be broken. So when we receive communion, actually there's a variant reading in one of the Greek texts that says, this is my body broken for you. But the better reading is, this is my body 
for you or my body given for you. And that's theologically significant because Jesus' bones were not broken. In fulfillment with this passage in Scripture, his bones were not broken. We know that when they partook of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, that the lamb was not to be broken in its bones. And so the fulfillment of that Passover lamb did not have his bones broken. And then verse 37 Scripture also says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And that's the connection with the piercing of Jesus' side and the blood and water flowing out. What what is going on here that would make this such a significant incident in John's mind that it might be evidence for faith in Christ? Well, as so often the case when John is using this fulfillment language, he doesn't just have in mind, aha, here's a word that connects with a word and he's just doing sort of free association. Uh, He's bringing to bear massive amounts of Old Testament theology. And in particular, with this incident, it's from the book of Zechariah. So wherever you are watching this, hope that you have a Bible and you can turn back to the Old Testament to Zechariah. Look at the middle of the book, Zechariah chapter 9. At the end of Zechariah, we have two oracles, the burden of the word of the Lord. And in chapter 9, the oracle starts with judgment on Israel's enemies. We see that in verses 1 through 8. And then Zechariah unfolds this stark contrast between Israel's unfaithful shepherds and God's chosen shepherd king who is to come. So there are unfaithful shepherds. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders. So shepherd imagery is used for the leaders of God's people, and they were often faithless, and he's going to punish them. But by contrast, there is a true shepherd that Zechariah announces. Go back in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was, of course, fulfilled on Palm Sunday. So this king, unlike the faithless kings of Israel, is going to be a humble shepherd. And he's going to be a betrayed shepherd. Turn over to chapter 11. Verse 12, then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. And this is fulfilled with the betrayal of Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. So this coming shepherd king is going to be a humble king, but he will be a betrayed king. And so it's not by coincidence that this first oracle in Zechariah ends with more faithless, worthless shepherds. Verse 17, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. And then we come in chapter 12 to the second of these concluding oracles for Zechariah's prophecy. And again, we follow this pattern. It starts with a message of judgment on all those who oppose Jerusalem. So it says that Jerusalem will be a heavy stone for all the peoples and those who try to attack Jerusalem will be hurt. 
The cup of staggering to the nations will be poured out. Judah will be a flaming torch, lighting her foes on fire. The Lord is going to destroy the enemies against Jerusalem. Then, as in the first oracle, Zechariah turns to a prophecy about God's anointed shepherd king. And we come to chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is the passage that John says is being fulfilled in the crucifixion. So the shepherd king will be pierced. The shepherd king will be struck. Look at chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So far, the two oracles have followed the same pattern. Judgment on the enemies of God. Prophecy about this coming shepherd king. An announcement that this coming shepherd king is going to be struck down. But recall, how did the first oracle end? It ended with a word about the worthless, faithless shepherds. But in the second oracle, the prophecy does not conclude with a defeated king, with worthless shepherds. No, no, no. Zechariah foresees a coming day of the Lord where the earth quakes, the sky goes black, and the shepherd is going to rule. You see chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. Concluding verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. And the book ends fittingly. Chapter 14, verses 20 through 21, with this ushering in of the age of universal holiness, even on the bells of the horses, it's going to say holy to the Lord. The pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy. So no longer is holiness just confined to those artifacts in the tabernacle or the temple, but across all of God's land, everything is holy. Why? Because this shepherd king, the humble king, the struck down king, the pierced king is now the one who will rule. So what does this have to do with putting faith in Christ? Well, it has everything to do with putting faith in Christ. The purpose of Zechariah's book We read in chapter 1, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. It is a book written and declared to God's people that they might return to him. And so surely as John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing his gospel... And as best as we can figure, written to those who are being established in their faith as Jewish Christians or proselytizing to Jews to put their faith in Christ, it would make all the sense in the world for this section of the crucifixion, before we move to the burial, that John would pull from all of this Zechariah imagery and language, beckoning to his own kinsmen in the flesh, return. Repent. Believe. 
And so far from John just sort of playing free association with Old Testament passages, there's a reason he says in John 19, 34, 35, and I bear witness. I was there. I saw it. I saw the spear go through. I saw the blood and water come out. This is the one that Zechariah had predicted. Can't you see it? Can't you see it's him? He will break the backs of the proud by being broken metaphorically for us. He will trample over the wicked by riding on a lowly donkey. He will triumph as a king by being slaughtered as the shepherd for his sheep. He will conquer by being conquered. He will kill sin by being killed himself. He will scatter his enemies by being torn apart. And did you notice what Zechariah 12.10 says? There's a word there I don't want you to miss. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. That's strange. This is the Lord speaking through Zechariah. And he says on the one hand, third person, when they look on him whom they have pierced. But right before that, he says, when they look on me. See, already, if they had ears to hear, they would have understood, perhaps even more than Zechariah himself understood, that this shepherd king was not just another prophet. This was God himself, the very one who was announcing this gracious news through Zechariah. They would look on him in human flesh. This is why John thought the piercing of Jesus' side was such a powerful incentive to faith. It established Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the shepherd king, the God-suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And I have to imagine John thinking of Zechariah's prophecy as he saw the blood and water flow, was thinking of Zechariah 13.1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. What is the water in the blood? Medically, people can try to explain it. Years later, church fathers saw an allusion to the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Augustine thought God was fashioning a bride, that is, the church, from the side of the second Adam, just like God in the garden had fashioned a bride from the first Adam. Well, whatever else it might mean, it surely is a sign of life being poured out through death. In John's gospel, water and blood are symbols of life. You're born again by water and the Spirit cleansed by blood. So in the death of the Son of God, which is so clearly seen in a pierced side with water and blood gushing out, in that death, there's life. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. 
So the word from Zechariah is the word for us. Repent. Believe. Today is not a day for feeling sorry for Jesus. It takes no work of the Spirit of God in your life to feel sorry for a man who suffered. That's not a bad sentiment to have. It's a very human sentiment to have. I fear there are many people convinced that they are Christians because they come to a day like Good Friday and they feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus had something to say about that, actually. People were weeping. He said, don't weep for me. How unsentimental of Jesus. There's women weeping as you carry your cross and come to the Golgotha. And yet he says, no, 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 you miss the point. You miss the point if you think Good Friday is a day to feel sorry for Jesus. Yes, we weep. Yes, we mourn. But Jesus says explicitly, today is a day to weep for your sins. You miss the point of the cross if you think a good man suffered a great injustice in life. You know, what was unique about Jesus on the cross is that he suffered not in body, he did, but he actually suffered in body less than the other men on the cross that day. He was already dead. It was an abnormally short death. But of course, his suffering could not be calculated by mere bodily pain. It was to sustain in his flesh and in his soul the full weight of God's wrath for sin. Today is a day to cry tears of contrition, to beat our breast with lamentation for our rebellion, to run to the cross, find refuge at the cross, be made new at the cross. Not a day of pristine people weeping tears for a good man who had to die. A messy day for dirty people who repent and lament of their sins and know that the only way to be cleansed is to have the cleansing power of that water and blood that came from his pierced side. Look on him, the one you and I have pierced. Repent, rejoice, and be washed clean at his wounded side. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would work together with your Son, by your Spirit, the miracle of new life, new birth, even now, as your word goes forth, new life in those who have never really understood their sin. And bring to all of us a fresh awareness of our rebellion that we might lament and turn and find freedom and fullness and a clean conscience at the foot of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.